Greetings. Welcome to my 15th podcast, the first of three from my sixth published on Amazon book, a non-fiction volume called Vignettes, Thoughts, and a Classical Exit. As a youngster, whenever I had a nightmare, all I could do was scream and write it out helplessly. Decades later, I learned to put myself into a full lotus and spiral into a calm center, banishing the assault. Three or four years ago, I had one that started with huge wasps crawling up a broken marble pillar, and I handled it by stopping the vision cold, freezing those bugs like a photograph. It was so easy, I awoke laughing like hell, and I haven't had one since. No dreams at all, in fact, except pleasing erotic ones. That seems to be the pattern of life. Horror to comedy to eroticism. Novice to monkey. Sage, of course, would pass on all of it. Dream last night, boss? Nope. Black clean through. In March of 76, shortly after I settled into a remote Eskimo village, a burly old warrior who spoke no English kicked in my door, scowled, threw a blushing daughter to the floor in front of me, and said, I don't care if you have her. I didn't know what to do, so I just stood there until he grunted, smiled, and left. By fading to holler erect and kick her outside immediately, I'd unknowingly taken part in a wedding ceremony thousands of years old. I hope, for her sake, by leaving town six months later, I also tapped into an equally ancient divorce. If not, I'm still a married man and potential bigamist. Back in 75, in the Queen Charlotte Islands, I was standing up on a hill on Hot Springs Island talking to a middle-aged American lawyer and his wife, who'd stopped to take on water before sailing on up to Alaska, when the fellow I'd been kayaking with walked up from the beach, cursing our failure to catch a salmon. They were everywhere, but somehow we were never able to catch one. Personally, I didn't give a shit, but Pitt was an ardent fisherman and his pride was at stake. Hot Springs Island is owned by the Indians and is considered a sacred place. As a goof, I held my hands up over my head and asked the great spirit for a salmon. Pitt scoffed and said, Don't be a biker. While you're at it, ask for two. So I did. Instantly, two giant eagles appeared above my head, hovering motionless. At thirty, I was too old to believe in coincidence, so I invited the folks to stay for a fish fry. They and Pitt looked at me like I was nuts, but within minutes, a fisherman from a trawler homeward bound to Prince Rupert came strolling up the hill with two huge salmon, which he laid at my feet before tipping his hat with a grin and ambling off wordlessly. Pitt glared at me in a rage like I just fucked his wife, and the Yankee tourist split at a run, refusing to take one of the salmon, which subsequently rotted. When John Lennon and John Belushi died, like millions of others, I felt an immense sense of loss, personal loss, more so than even the passing of my own father. I felt, and still feel, that I'd been robbed. I wanted to get old with them, see how we all turned out. A few years back, I almost killed my 68-year-old crippled landlord, had him by the throat at the top of a vertical set of stairs, when I saw red. I'd read about it and knew it meant uncontrollable rage, so I didn't follow through. If I hadn't read about it, I'd be in the pen today, serving a life sentence or dead. I mean, how long would you last inside if the boys knew you'd flung a 68-year-old cripple to his death? When you're on a long bicycle trip, 
The high points are the downhill coasts. It could take hours to sweat your way up a mountain, but that downhill slide is heavenly, well worth all the pain. It's especially pleasurable if the drop isn't preceded by a climb, and that's what it's like going down from the central plateau of southern England into the seaside village of Dover. All day I'd been anticipating the rush. But just when I got there, an incredible headwind blew up, and I was forced to work my guts out in first gear just to crawl that last mile and a half down into town. Two-thirds of the way there, an old gentleman smoking a pipe, with his feet up on the handlebars, sailed past me at an incredible clip, grinning affably, coasting straight up an impossible hill. Somewhere in England, there's a huge natural amphitheater shaped like a perfect bowl, covered in short, carefully tented grass, with a lawn bowling field right in the middle, surrounded by a thick cable suspended by deeply embedded iron posts. Drunk as a lord one pitch-black night, and unaware of what lay nestled in the bottom of the bowl, I came screaming down the side, flattered on my bicycle, doing sixty in tenth gear, pedals spinning like a flywheel. One second before I slammed into that cable, a fraction below the handlebars, I saw it just in time to know I was dead. My momentum was so great, I could feel that cable actually stretch before it snapped, and I was hurled over the bars to land at a distance, flat on my back, on the softest bed of green imaginable. As I lay there laughing like hell, savoring the impossible, sure death escaped without penalty, my bicycle, which had been hurled back from whence it came, the cable acting like a huge elastic band, returned from nowhere and slammed into the turf, burying the handlebars like a pair of bull's horns to the hilt on both sides of my empty skull. Investigation showed I hit the cable sufficiently off-center to cause a lateral slide which took the bike past dead center where the cable broke, enabling it to entangle itself about the bike and whip it backwards with force and forward once again in the manner I've described. As it was, neither I nor the bicycle sustained so much as a scratch. If I'd hit that cable dead center, I'd have gone through it like it wasn't even there, smack into a post on the other side of the lawn. Beside the little fishing village in Scotland where my father was born, there's an unclimbable hill, a hill that's killed or crippled everyone who's tried to master it. As a child, my father gave it a go and almost made it, permanently damaging an arm in the process and barely escaping with his life. The day I arrived, I met some of the locals carrying out on a door the mangled corpse of an elderly and unsuccessful British enthusiast. Even his example I found unnecessary, because I had no intention of taking up the challenge. After dinner with Dad's only living in-laws, my brother and I and a friend went for a stroll along the base of the cliffs, on a narrow rocky beach bordering the sea. When we were returning, the tide was coming in, and it looked like we might lose our beach, so I decided to climb a harmless-looking cliff about a hundred feet high to get up on the plateau above town, and it was about two-thirds of the way up when I realized was the unclimbable hill. From below, it looked steep but manageable, one way, with rocks and little bushes and such for toeholds. But the last third gradually became sandier and sandier, cresting back on itself under wispy grass and stones that gave way immediately to the touch. As I started to slide back, I discovered my momentum made it impossible to stop myself from accelerating until I smashed on the rocks below. So I did the only thing I could do. I swam frantically up the rest of the hill, like some character in a cartoon, and I made it, 
kicking down a shower of rocks on James and Alec below, discouraging them from following me. As I lay there on top of the hill, cooling off in the breeze, waiting for them to wade round and come up the path, I realized for the first time in my life, at the age of thirty-two, I was destined for greatness. I had climbed the unclimbable hill. <laughs>